Hi, and welcome back to Now. In this podcast, we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop. We will also consider the wider world of pop culture and how our favourite compilation albums shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our musical journeys. I hope that you'll enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the podcast on your favourite podcast place and let me know your thoughts and feedback too. And there's plenty more with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining me for this episode is Pete Perfides. Between 2005 and 2010, Pete was the chief rock critic of The Times, and since then he has written for, amongst others, The Guardian, Mojo and Q magazine, and can also be seen and heard regularly contributing his enthusiasm and ruminations on music across both radio and television. In 2019, Pete launched Needle Mythology, a record label aimed at reissuing lost and very much loved albums not previously been available on vinyl. Following reissues from the likes of Stephen Duffy and Ian Brodie, the label released its first album of new material at the end of 2020, In Memory of My Feelings, an original collaboration between the Anchoress and Bernard Butler, and was followed with the critically acclaimed Ed Dowie album, The Obvious Eye, earlier this year. 2020 also saw the publication of Broken Greek, which has been wonderfully described as a story of chip shops and pop. Pete's biographical account describes his formative tussle between his Greek and Brummies identity and is shot through with his life-determining discovery of music through the 70s and 80s. And if that wasn't enough, you can also catch Pete's regular radio shows on Soho Radio. Pete, welcome back to now. Hi, lovely to be here and thanks for asking me. Oh, it's great to have you on board. So 2020 for a lot of us was a year of not very much, but you managed to uh, release a book and launch a record label. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, that was all stuff that was done prior to 2020, but it culminated in 2020. So it kind of, it made me seem very busy. I guess I was very busy trying to kind of make sure that people knew about those things. And I feel like I've accidentally walked into someone else's life because I I never thought I'd write a book writing books was just something that other far much cleverer people than me did I, I thought I'd probably go mad if I tried to write a book I started writing Broken Greek in 2017 and I just kept going and um, you know my wife will attest to this I, I didn't even call it a book for the first year that I was working on it I try and work outside of the house if I can usually in cafes and stuff and she'd go like what did you do today I said well you know did a bit more work on this thing that might turn into a book but um it's a bit early to tell at the moment. And, you know, she just got completely exasperated with me. And in the end, she said, no, you're writing a book. Just say you're writing a book. And, um, and so I, I kind of, but I almost thought that I just didn't think, I just didn't know if it'd come out. And the label is just something that I've just had kicking around in my head for ages. Really, just to sort of, you know, it's kind of sad when there's an album you really, really love but it doesn't exist on on vinyl. I don't want to be too much of a vinyl bore about it, but I just personally, I just like, you know, holding up a record and just feel, I just like the dimensions of it and all of that. And uh, I thought, let's start, let's see if we can get that, you know, Stephen Duffy's I Love My Friends, which is one of my favourite albums of all time. And uh, Ian Ian Brodie's Tales Told, those were the first two, because I think, okay, we we need to write that wrong because they're both beautiful records and it's not fair that, you know, they didn't get the release they deserved. And we just proceeded from there, really. And I'm I'm surrounded, I've got really clever people working with me that actually know how to put records out. I'm the cheerleader, you know. (laughs) 
I'm like an obsessive cheerleader who loves cheerleading so much that I had to start a, a sports team in order to do all the cheerleading that I want to do. Yeah, it is my label, but mainly I like cheerleading. So uh, that, that's, that's where we are. The Stephen Duffy reissue was fabulous. It just feels like a loved item. I'm lucky enough to be friends with Stephen, and um, he sent me the cassette of that album when, just as he finished work on it. And I just remember at the time, just, you know, obviously, I, as a fan, you know, I'd, again, I'd wandered into a situation that was like a fan's dream. You know, one of my favourite artists is sending me upfront cassettes of his record. I remember putting it in the car and just thinking, oh, my God, he's really done it this time. He's that completely... This is just an abs- This is a masterpiece uh, that I always knew that he was capable of. And then at the last minute, he got a bit of trouble from the label who sort of didn't really think it had any singles on it. And their big idea was that he should record two putative singles with Andy Partridge. I think the idea was that because Britpop was kind of in the air, that somehow having a Andy Partridge produce a couple of tracks might provide him the hit that he needed. But Stephen being just infuriating at times, he just removed two of the very best songs from the record in order to make room for these two Andy Partridge songs that don't really sound like they belong to the record because they don't really. They were just an afterthought. And so I always thought, God, you know, one day I'm just going to have to just put this record out myself, correct that mistake. And somehow, you know, here we are. It happened. I can't believe it. And the reviews, I'm so happy because the reviews basically said, yes, this is brilliant, you know. I think what struck me listening to the album when it was reissued was actually how it it doesn't sound like a time capsule of Britpop or the mid-90s. It still really stands up. No, I mean, he wasn't really sort of really doing that at that point. I mean, there there was a sort of perception that he was trying to muscle in on Britpop because there's one song on the album that came before it, Duffy, which was called London Girls. And that's that's kind of a song, uh, an observational song about, you know, what he could see going on around him in Camden at the time, because he had a flat in Parkway, on Camden Parkway. The the Britpop PRs, Savage and Best, were um, across the road from him, so he could see that kind of happening. But that was a, that was like an aberration on the album, because that album was really like, a, he was recorded in America with Mitch Easter, and it was like a jangly, sun-kissed power pop album that just happened to have this slightly jarring, you know, in the context of what else was on that record. I thought uh, it, it just sort of stuck out uh, in, in not a great way, I didn't think so. But I Love My Friends was a very different record. It was very confessional. He just started going to therapy. Uh, he was really coming to terms with a lot of kind of sort of dysfunctions and neuroses in his life that it was he felt it was time to correct. And it all just sort of came out in this um, beautiful kind of rush of confessional melodies. So, yeah, that's what that is. And I'm glad that people finally got to hear it as it was intended to be heard. I have to say the book, like the best biographies, I think people could resonate with a lot of what was in there, not just the music, but about the life experiences as well. Mm -hmm. Um, It's always that way you think, has somebody been snooping on my entire life? Because this just (laughs) seems to kind of of mirror so much, you know. It must have been a great experience for you. Yeah, I mean, what you just said about, you know, it resonating with your life, you know, that was the big kind of risk, really, the hypothesis that, uh, that the book was built on. And I think a lot of us that had a disproportionate love of pop probably did so because there were things going on elsewhere in our lives that were not that sort of great or there were confusions going on in our lives that maybe pop could act as a sort of proxy area in which we could sort of figure them out. 
And I really do believe that. I believe that that's what happened to me. And I think that's what happened to a lot of people I'm, I'm friends with. I'm overwhelmed by the reaction to the book. And I still get messages and tweets every day from people who are reading it, who I wanted, uh, you know, the, I didn't know if there was a place for it. And that's why I didn't call it a book when I was right. I didn't want to call it a book when I was writing it because it because I didn't know, you know, there are books about music and there are memoirs, but I, I didn't know of a book that kind of interwove music and memoir in that way. But I thought, well, that's kind of weird to me that there aren't books that do that because anyone who's grown up on pop music, telling the story of their life, you know, you, you can't separate the two. The two are the sort of same thing. They're kind of interwoven into each other. And all that sort of stupid stuff that you do when you're a kid, all those confusing, those mistakes that you make when you try and fit in, when you run with the cool gang. And, you know, pop music is the soundtrack to all of that. And I feel like I was very lucky because, you know, there were certain groups like ABBA were, you know, I could sort of figure out things that were going on in my parents' marriage by listening to ABBA. How lucky were we to have Madness? We Madness with this group that seemed to be just describing what was happening in our lives at any one time. And I started school, I started secondary school on the, on the same month that Baggy Trousers came out. Well... That was like an instructional manual for me, you know. Like that was, oh, okay, that, that's what that's what I'm, I'm, I'm going to expect. Then is it? And then, to, then a couple of years later, House of Fun came out. You know, just as like a lot of people in my class were hitting puberty. I was like, oh, okay, right, okay, that's how. You know, madness was so educational in a way. You know, even things like embarrassment, which deal you know, with this really sort of explosive subject of somebody kind of going out with uh, someone from another racial background and the ramifications, you know, the really important group, I think, Madness, you know, and because they kind of cloaked it in this kind of knockabout kind of manner, the cleverness of what they did was often not as readily acknowledged. You know, I wanted the book to be funny because I didn't want it to be like, you know, it's not a misery memoir. I call it a confusion memoir because actually I think, I think that's kind of what it is. It's like, um, you know, any childhood is like probably 80% confusion because who's going to explain everything to you? You know, you're constantly coming, to, leaping to the wrong conclusions about things. And that's why even on page one of the book, you know, I wanted to sort of mention a couple of the things that were just totally bewildering to me, like the fact that the there was a cartoon called The Pig Panther, but there was a <laughs> there were some films called The Pig Panther, and they they didn't have a Pig Panther in them, but the cartoon did. But in the opening credits to one of the films, I think there was a Pig. Well, you know, there was a game called Mastermind that looked a lot like. It was a TV on, program. Yeah, because yeah, it was like Adam, you know, this very scary looking man in a dark room, which looked like the Mastermind Studio. But there were these little things you put in pegs. I thought Fred Astaire and Freddie Starr were the same person. I mean, no one, no one has the time to explain anything to you at that yeah. age. I was physically stopped in my tracks when you started talking about Gregory's Girl. I was brought up in the west of Scotland in one of those small oh, really? new towns. 
basically for us, Gregory's Girl was a documentary. I mean, it was oh. literally it was it was it was so resonant to us, and I I was just about hitting secondary school, around about that kind of early eighties oh, anyway. You know, those places, although I didn't grow up in exactly like a place like that, the places where we used to play just around the corner, just down the road from where, from where I grew up, that were a lot like that, you know, like developments in places that had been bombed during the war. I remember when I was, I didn't put this in the book, but when I was five or six, uh, there was this kind of one estate, which, you know, just looked really aspirational to me. Because, of course, we'd, we'd also watch things like Mary Mungo and Midge, uh, which also presented a very aspirational kind of view of post-war urban living, you know, all mod cons. So I loved those kind of, you know, very well-kept winding walkways that would kind of go go in between these kind of blocks of flats and these kind of big municipal planters. Great for bikes, cycling, you know, the, you know and there's actually the, one of the, um, um, an upcoming release on my label, uh, Needle Mythology. We put it, we're putting out a, um, an anthology of uh, songs by a uh, Scottish group called Butcher Boy, who've released three albums, and we're, we're putting out um, an anthology uh, of songs taken from all all those uh, records and a single as well. And it's just wonderful because there's something about Butcher Boy's music that really evokes that kind of Gregory's girlish kind of very sort of soft, romantic, post-war sort of environment in which you know young people in the 1970s and 80s would find their way and you know go courting with each other and anyway we found these um photographs um of an estate i think he's on the outskirts of edinburgh called wester hales by a photographer called john walmsley and they're just absolutely beautiful they're just taken at the the kind of magic hour so you got this kind of wonderful like foreboding sky above these wonderful kind of walkways and John Niven has written an essay to to go in it as well, a kind of reminiscence of growing up in Gregory's Girl is mentioned. So it's this lovely sort of synergy of these three elements, Butcher Boy's songs, John's fantastic words, and John Walmsley's beautiful photographs all coming together in this wonderful package. I just think Gregory was a great sort of um kind of a role model in a way because he was sort of gentle and he was getting it wrong and you could see you could sort of measure your own ineptitude against his i just love how the girls kind of cook up this scheme all the girls in that film know what's in gregory's interests far more than he does and that really alights on something really crucial about the developmental difference <laughs> between girls and boys at that age you know it, the world would be a better place if boys just Listen to girls. Yes. <laughs> and did what they told them to. <laughs> now we have liftoff. Now 13 flies you to the stars with Salt and Pepper, Robert Palmer, Womack and Womack, Bobby McFerrin, Billy Vanilli, Erasure, Brother Beyond. Three number ones from Phil Collins, The Hollies, and Yaz. 32 top chart hits on one astronomic double album. Now that's what I call music 13. We're going to go back to the autumn of 1988, and you've selected now 13. Why this album, Pete? What What is it about this album and that time that's important for you? Um, I think I chose, I can't, I'm not, I can't 100% remember why I chose it, but I think I chose it because it was like, it's just a funny in-betweeny kind of time. And I'm I'm intrigued by this balance of um, 
you know, people that had success in the early 80s and had maybe slightly lost their way, they're trying to stay relevant. And that was always an interesting time for me. I've always been interested in what people do when they're no longer the, that thing of the moment. I realized that that was just something for some reason I noticed, even from a young age, you know, the sort of awkwardness of being famous, but not necessarily knowing what to do next. And so there's a lot of that going on. And um, we're in a kind of this post Live Aid world that suddenly feels very more corporate than it ever has done before. And looking at the track listing now, I can see fairly lame A&R decisions that are having to be actioned by uh, some unfortunate artists, some kind of random hit action from people who were famous uh, a long time ago, but, um, you know, had uh, maybe had their song on an advert or something. And obviously Acid House is emerging, and it's interesting to see what kind of uh, records, you know, sort of, of that era, of that milieu, a sort of charting and being picked up by major labels. And, you know, the uh, Stockett and Waterman, of course, are starting to assert themselves. And, you know, they're, they're, they're an interesting proposition, not just because of what they're doing, but the way that other artists have had to react to Stockett and Waterman. So let's start with Yaz, uh, which I think, you know, yeah, listening back to this, you know, I guess what I had confirmed to me was something I kind of ha- naggingly thought all along, to be honest, which was, I like what the song represents. I like the kind of positivism. And I could see, even though I'd never even been near an ecstasy tablet, you know, you could feel it, obviously you could feel it in the air, the change in air pressure. And Yaz was such a striking character. And I, weirdly enough, I remember being in the same way that we spoke about earlier on, about being confused by things, you know, in the same way that I was confused confused that Grange Hill had the same theme tune as Give Us a Clue. And uh, <laughs> is that allowed? Is, why, why, why is that going on about this? You know, why is, you know, it just seems wrong somehow. I remember Yaz's face because Yaz was in, well, Yaz was a very successful model hmm. and she appeared in um, in a couple of adverts for, I think, beer maybe in Q. And I remember seeing her face in Q magazine. So it's just funny to just see her like on uh, Top of the Pops and, um I saw she looks this seems this might seem like an unkind thing to say but it really isn't meant to be because she's she's clearly very very beautiful but she she looked like Dr Seuss had drawn her you know those lovely sort of friendly but slightly proportionately uh, unusual Dr Seuss kind of creatures that you see yeah. so I, yeah. I another kind of theme of my book is you know, really liking people who have a kind face. And, um, yeah. and you know, if, I, if I'd been like, I don't know, uh, uh, 12 years younger, then I, I would, Yaz would have been very high up on my list of possible uh, dream childminders. Given that the message of the song is obviously about positivity, it's also about being at a really low point. Yeah. yeah. But she is so energetic, you know, you know, she's a very tall artist as well oh, just think of all that jumping around i was so enthusiastic yeah and in the um, kind of uh dr- the drum kind of the, where the the drums kind of build up into the chorus and she kind yeah. of she sort of does that ju- running on the spot thing uh yeah. in time with the snare it was the second biggest selling track of the year mm. um behind cliff obviously um who kind of came in and stole the rest of the year for the oh. rest of the um uh, december but massive massive hit cold cut produced i didn't know it was a cover until a few years ago weirdly enough I, 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 I sort of heard Otis Clay did the original and that's great as well actually um, yeah. it sounds like it should be older than it is but I think it came out in 1980 <laughs> 
I think an interesting song to compare it to that's also on this record is uh, oh, Harvest for the World by the mm. Christians, which is also on side, which is also a cover version. But for me, it's an example of like lazy A&Ring which doesn't really work in the interests of the artist for whom it's for. Of course, maybe they, maybe it was a Christian's idea to, uh, to, to do it. And there's a sort of kind of ostensible logic to them doing Harvest for the World because Harvest for the World is originally a song by, by brothers, the Isley brothers. But I, I just sort of think that it's, sort of, it's just a bit too easy to do a familiar song. And actually, uh, and, um, it's hard to come back with original material when you release a song like harvest for harvest for the world it's a little bit like when you're djing and you play like an absolute floor filler very early on or for something like like if you play dancing queen half an hour into your dj set then well you've made your job very very difficult because people will only want familiar things from you after that 1987 had been a really big year for the christians and that that debut album now is often forgotten Mm. Um, you might hear Ideal World, perhaps, yeah. but songs like Hooverville and Forgotten Town, you know, that was a really, really big album. And they came back later with another very good album. But in the middle, you've got this Albatross almost. Yeah. And it just, it just sort of upsets the harmony, I think. And, it, and what happens as a result of that is, uh, you know, someone of our age will say, well, actually, Forgotten Town is a really, is, is a really great song. And um and you know like a fantastic lyric one of a bunch of songs actually i mean i assume it's written about what was happening in liverpool at the time and there are a few songs like that there was a song by the ice school work called up here in the north of england and there's a track as well on the first it's a material album called the better plan and also come back by the mighty war uh, but yeah. yeah it's just a bit of a, these lame a r decisions you know can really you know torpedo a group's career and i think uh, harvest for the world is was just like totally wrong for the christians although weirdly enough i noticed on this right there are th- i think three songs on this on now 13 that have an isley brothers connection so we've got harvest for the world twist and shout yeah it's hard you know i i didn't know until i did a little bit of sniffing around before i um before we did this today the harder i try by brother beyond I think it has a drum loop from the sort heart of mine. It does indeed. Yeah, it's uh, that's right. Yeah, there you go. Did you see the light bulb going on there? Yeah, that's lovely. It was really because I didn't know, so that was really impressive. I it was only in the course of my research. Yeah, that so that, yeah, the harder I try is an interesting song, isn't it? Because that was um, yeah. I thought you know I'm, I I suspect rather like yourself. I used to go to uh record shops and uh chart return shops especially to see what now people of certain age won't know this but you know, um there were like i think 500 records around the country that had a little kind of primitive computer which they were supposed to conceal beneath the countertop and every time they sold a record uh then the person at the record shop had to input the details of the record they just sold into this computer and that was how the national chart was compiled so um shops that had these computers obviously would be targeted by reps regional reps from 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 major record labels who would just stuff lots of free copies of their new release 
into the racks, which meant that the record shop could sell them like for 50 pence each. And people would go, oh, the new Brother Beyond single, that's 50 pence. I'll buy that instead of Suede Head by Morrissey or something. You know, Because <laughs> obviously it's an either or thing with those. Yeah, of course. It would have been with me. And I remember like, you know, and so you could really see like which artists were in the last chance saloon and brother beyond were absolutely on their last legs yeah. uh, so they entered this competition uh which was uh no it was an auction wasn't it so it's, it was an auction stock yeah. and waterman auctioned their services for the young variety club of great britain and emi won the auction because the prize was they will write a song for one of your acts i think this was their sixth single release mm. which nowadays is just unheard of yeah and auctioned off to stock aiken and what i know which is interesting because stock a woman had a slightly kind of outlaw quality at this point because they were like their records were released independently they were sort of um they weren't really part of the mainstream industry in a way because they were doing things their way you know they, they had this kind of hit factory approach and of course it meant that indie kids like me were kind of up in arms when the, you'd have the chart show rundown yeah and you know the chart it wasn't based on genre it was literally the chart show would like the, it was like what was independent what were the top 10 independently released singles that week and you know so if they could did the indie countdown and kylie was number one with i should be so lucky <laughs> You're like, this is a con. You know, this is a waste of two minutes. You know, like you can have Ky Kylie's on top of the pops. Why don't you play, I don't know, Danielle Dax or something? <laughs> We're not, we don't um, stand a chance of hearing Daniel Dax elsewhere. I was looking across the album tracks on Now 13, and initially you think there isn't a lot of what you would class as 1980 indie on here. But actually, the indie tracks, as you say, are the ones from the, some of the shiniest pop tracks, like mm. the Rhythm King tracks and The Harder I Try. They were the indie presence at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, yeah, there's a couple of yeah, a couple of points off the back of this. But first of all, you're, you're absolutely right. Rhythm King was quick to react to changes that were sort of happening, you know, in the wider world uh, with hip hop and, and house. And so... What have we got here? We've got a couple of Rhythm King releases. We've got we've got Bond the Bass with uh, Don't Make Me Wait. What's the other Rhythm King track? I was beat was it Beatmasters? It's the Beatmasters from PP Arnold. PP Arnold, yeah. Which is kind of ahead of its time in a way because it's sort of pioneer of the kind of the featuring song. Yeah. Which is like I mean, these days everything is a featuring song, isn't it? Being kind of anally retentive, when I saw Beatmasters with PP Arnold. I just thought, oh, there's that woman who who was the backing vocalist on Icing on the Cake by Stephen Duffer. <laughs> well, that's nice for her. She's finally got to sing a song. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, that that's good. And it's, again, she probably wasn't that old at the time, but she looked older than the people that she was with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, the um, and this will bring us on to uh, Tom Jones in a minute, I'm sure. Yeah. She was like a groovy mum, wasn't she, really? That's how I sort of saw her, you know. I couldn't sort of figure out how Beatmasters kind of were mates with her, but they probably weren't. They probably just called her <laughs> on. I think I, I stopped your train of thought. We're on Brother Beyond. Do you want to go back to that? Oh, Brother Beyond, the Isley, but the three songs, the three, oh, the yeah. Isley Brothers connection, yeah, three songs. So those are the three. Weirdly enough, the Isley Brothers are a sort of presence or a proxy presence on three completely different songs, uh, which is sort of a testament really to how, 
you know, there are those the the list of great Isley Brothers songs is just so long. You know, they're weirdly sort of underrated in a way, just because in in terms of the amount of eras they straddle so successfully. But yeah, no, so it's just that really. But the Brother Beyond thing, I, while we're on Brother Beyond, that's kind of interesting because. It's interesting to me that Stock Ake and Waterman, they, yeah, there, there are some really rubbish Stock Ake and Waterman songs, and there are the songs where they're really sort of trying to pull out something extra. So it's always interesting to see who gets what. So, like, Bana they didn't give Banana Rama any old rubbish, you know. No. They didn't give Kylie any old rubbish. And similarly, you know, I guess because they were sort of trying to prove a point to the industry, the harder I try is just a pretty solid sort of uh, 70s soul. Uh, pastiche brother beyond were very lucky to be the recipients of it womack and womack teardrops it's mm. you know that's um i remember in that way that you can be so patronizing when you're when you're a teenager and you've done nothing in your life i can remember just being so happy for them they'd finally come up with another hit because it was yeah. like four years since love wars teardrops almost has a kind of occult power doesn't it because yeah. and i think that backing track is just so good and what does it ultimately consist of that backing track it's just like a kind of straight kind of four it's four. so simple but it's just i think i remember hearing someone who knows about drumming say actually the simplest the hardest thing to do well is just a simple uh, just a simple beat you know just done to perfection you know you don't sort of even without anything going on you know you get a backing track like that and then you, you're sort of three quarters of the way home uh, that was a massive track as well i mean it's still such a you know you talk about playing your early you know your your big hits as a dj that that's one that you hold back um, you do, yeah as well. and then people are always pleasantly surprised because it doesn't necessarily get the um you know people don't go on about it as much as they should in a way but you know you've got two songs side one there you've got two songs back to back that and a little respect by erasure yeah but over the decades people are almost quite moved when they hear those songs because they're they're so perfect and mm. so unshowy in their excellence that i think there's something quite moving about a song that is just quite unselfconsciously selflessly brilliant as those those two songs it's just it's it's in it, it's totally in the service of its listeners you really don't own that song anymore it means so much more to other people now yeah and it's um it's an extraordinary so i mean just in terms of like how low it goes and then how high it goes it's just a complete bravura sort of display from andy bell but i forget you know, I saw James Yorkston uh, covering it a few years ago, and it's just so lovely when a song sort of soaks so far into the canon that even quite a left-field sort of folkish singer-songwriter like James Yorkston will sort of, you know, will will be reverential around it. I mean, does it all go a bit pear-shaped on side one after that, doesn't it? Yeah. Side one's funny, the rest of this. First of all, after the Christians, you've got misstep number one, which is Hugh and Cry's Ordinary Angel, which I even struggled to remember. No, I had to listen to it, especially. I mean, I, you know, like I, I really try and see the good in kind of, <laughs> you know, all kind of pop records, um, especially as I get softer and older. But um, Hugh and Cry, I just think that they're, they're just a synergy of horrors, really. Um, Pat Candy's almost like someone you sort of hear him and you sort of think, Maybe it is possible to be loved too much as a child. <laughs> Just who who told him that he that that he's got a remotely sort of he's got this voice that he thinks he's he seems to think he's Sinatra. If that man can try and fit in an additional twelve notes, he will try and do it. 
<laughs> particularly after this album what was this album called was it remote yeah they became they became very important in their own eyes with a capital i and it's, um, the, it's a little bit like a game on whose line is it anyway where like <laughs> if someone says to john sessions can you sing in the style of a, an oleaginous creep then it, w- it would it would be hue and cry wouldn't it you know yeah, yeah let's move on from hue and cry <laughs> um now uh, breakfast in bed ub40 and chrissy hind this was a very timely cover version i suppose yeah to do yeah breakfast in bed, although it's quite a unique version of it yeah i mean i I don't, it doesn't really work for me. I mean, I love early UB40, and I, and I just, uh, Chrissy Hine can do no wrong for me. I think Breakfast in Bed um, reminds me, uh, I mean, this is also the year that Aswad finally got a huge hit, wasn't it, with Don't Turn mm. Around? And so it's, it feels to me like this was the year that, in order to compete commercially, that's kind of what reggae had to do. And that seems like kind of a sad thing to me, because um, if you think about all the things that reggae didn't have to do in the 70s in order to yield all these brilliant hit singles. It just seems sort of a bit sad. And I understand, I don't really uh, I don't really want to hate on UB40 because too many people do it and it kind of takes away the the brilliance of some, especially some of their early earlier releases. And the other th- problematic thing about UB40 is that they can carried on being a hugely successful band in Jamaica you know, long after people like me thought, you know, were saying, oh, well, can you, they've kind of, they've sold out or whatever, you know. Um, and so, you know, f- fair enough, you know, they kind of, they, they have a connection with their audience and their intended audience and the, and the, the, the traditions which inform their music. But I sort of think that Chrissy Hind was, had established a friendship with UB40. I, I sort of know this because I've, I've interviewed both of them. So I think Breakfast in Bed is almost like a chance for them to just kind of hang out with each other and have some fun. Yeah. And if they can get a hit single out of it, then fine. Weirdly enough, right next to it is She Makes My Day by Robert Palmer. He also, like a couple of years later, he did, did a version of I'll Be Your Baby Tonight with UB40, which for me yeah. works slightly better, I've got to say. I didn't realise this until I did some digging that the, the Dusty Memphis album never charted in the UK. Oh, really? Okay. I don't think, it, I, I thought I knew it didn't do very well, but I didn't know yeah. it hadn't. That's amazing that it didn't. Which is all. just baffling because, you know, obviously now it's just one of these omnipresent classic albums, you know. Um, so I suppose at that point, again, I wouldn't have known Breakfast in Bed was a Dusty Springfield song. No, um, I don't think I, I think it was a thing that, you know, maybe it was mentioned in the chart show Fact Box. And that's that. Yeah. No, I Robert Palmer's She Makes My Day is, you know, like when I've done my radio show, one thing I really love to do is I love to just kind of find a track that maybe you wouldn't necessarily hear in the context of someone doing a radio show where you might play, you know, some new kind of left field releases or some kind of like squally indie music from another age or punk or psychedelia or whatever. And then you throw if it's lovely to throw in a song like she makes my day because it makes you kind of see it for what it is and not to make a big deal of it not to say oh yeah that's great you know how some djs pointedly say but that's a really great pop song which i sort of i really hate it when they do that because it's almost almost like they're trying to create special conditions for saying that you like it well there's nothing wrong with pop we all love pop you don't have to say that's a great pop song and she makes my day is just one that is just just a perfectly just a beautiful beautiful song beautifully sung really reminds you that you know robert palmer is not only a great singer but was a a fantastic songwriter on his day and for me something like she makes my day 
I remember being surprised, you know, I wasn't necessarily in the market for liking Robert Palmer songs, but I still liked it enough to to buy it when it was reduced uh, after it fell out of the charts uh, when I saw it in in Woolworth. And it's interesting looking back at it now is because uh, I was a huge Aztec Camera fan. And, you know, just before this, they'd released their third album, Love, which is very much an attempt to R- Roddy Frame trying to sort of represent himself as a sort of, of, of a modern soul singer. And I love Roddy and I, I like a lot of that album. But to be honest, you know, I, I'm not sure there's a song on it that's quite as good as She Makes My Day, which I sort yeah. of think is kind of where he was trying to head. Next to that is... <sighs> Is there much to say about Breathe, Hands to Heaven? Well, uh, well, you know, I mean, it's, I was listening to it yesterday and I was trying to sort of get the measure because I couldn't really, it was at the time, it, that just was not the sort of thing I was after. You know, I was talking to some friends yesterday on uh, on Facebook about uh, a song which maybe kind of belongs in the same milieu. But you know that thing that happens where you sort of, just a song appears in your head like for the first time in 30 years and you completely forgotten about it and i had that yesterday with i've been in love before by cutting crew and um and i just thought that's so weird it's just like does it sound as good in real life as it's currently sounding in my head and it did and i d- it made me realize yeah, there is a sort of small sort of subcategory of incredibly sort of polished well you know real sort of studio creations that almost kind of produced almost to within an inch of their life but not quite because there is life in there and often there is sort of a sort of a great song in there and uh, i definitely feel that way about i've been in love before i actually think it's quite a nice contrast when you get like an incredibly sad melancholy devastating song which is just cocooned in machine tooled production stuff but but there's life in there nonetheless and um and i love that about it must have been love by roxette it's like a very sad ghost in a beautiful machine. And uh, yeah. is Hands to Heaven by Breathe one of the songs? Well, we ended up having a bit of a debate about this yesterday. Yeah. And uh, a song like Hands to Heaven, you know, I feel like George Michael had sort of made it acceptable for newer artists to unashamedly command this kind of terrain again. A friend of mine on this post, for I'll, I'll quote him, my friend John, what he had to say is far more clever than anything I can say. He said, hands to heaven by breathe. There's definitely a family tree to be drawn up that includes this and the other songs you mentioned, like uh, the Cutting Crew song and Doobles, the captain of her heart and mm-hmm. Turn About the Clock by Johnny H. Jeff. They're more than just M.O.R. If you asked all the musicians involved, they will tell you that Asia was their favorite album when they were <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about phil collins and the groovy kind of love which um do i do i sit at home listening to groove phil collins version of a groovy kind of i don't really know but i do think that one thing that's really sort of comes through with phil's cover versions and actually his phil's cover versions and his pastiche songs actually they're, they're kind of cut from a similar cloth they both kind of showcase how much of a fan he is and he, you know, he's still essentially that teenager who was, was it Phil that was in the stalls of a, of a Hard Day's Night? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I've looked for him, but I can never find him. <laughs> no, I saw a still once, I think. And so it does sort of, it came through in You Can't Hurry Love, which is like my friend, you've interviewed Bob Stanley, haven't you? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm too scared to tell Bob that I really, I really like Phil's version of it. You can't. You know, <laughs> I feel like he might never be my friend again if I say that. To him. <laughs> um, I did. I think he looked quite appalled when I told him that I preferred. <laughs> <laughs> I preferred Kim Wilde's version of You Keep Me Hanging On to the original. I think You Keep My, Hang Me Hanging On is essentially a different song to the one that she, the, the original that she covers because it's got this kind of urgency, a slight sense of uh, terror about it. It's the sound of someone who's in deep water and mm. she and she handles it like a seasoned actor. I mean, I just think it's such a great and the arrangement is in service to this emotional urgency that her performance has. Um, quick detour while we're talking about Kim Wilde. Uh, you yeah. Came by Kim Wilde is also on here. Mm. I think that's an interesting thing uh, in it. We talked about Stock Cake and Waterman earlier on. You Came. It sounds to me like a complete okay. This stuck out. This is what's happening now. Kim goes home, meets up with her brother Ricky, her dad Marty. How brilliant to be in a family of people who love and understand pop and are still interested in what's happening at the moment and are still interested in playing the game, competing, trying to come up with contemporary pop song. So I think this is like Ricky and and and, and Marty and and Kim all having a chat with each other saying, yeah, we can do this better. Let's just, uh, yeah. and actually I think it is like a high-end Stock Aitken Waterman song. And, yeah. you know, fair fucks to them. Just come back very quickly to Phil Collins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of. I suppose in, in the UK, the Mindbenders is that version that kind of people knew before that. However, have you heard Les Gray's version? No, no. <laughs> Tell me right. I, I hadn't. I found it when I was kind of Googling around for this. There is an amazing Top of the Pops clip of Les Gray completely dialing in a version of Groovy Kind of Love <laughs> in 1977. It's like he's he's kept a hold of the suit, you know, the white suit. Yeah, yeah, kind yeah. Of obviously, he hasn't given it back. He's kept a hold of it. Oh and God. he's singing it just on that beginning of punk period when the audience don't really want Les Gray to be there. I I implore you to find this Top of the Pops. Oh, yeah, God, I mean, because um, I, 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 I think as well he's singing it live. It might have been that time when Top of the Pops had to sing live mm-hmm. um, with, the, you know, the backing band. Sure. I think he's had a couple of refreshments in the BBC. Yeah, I mean, he, look, I mean, he's... The, the increasing redness of Les Gray's face as he went through <laughs> life rather sort of suggested that, um, <laughs> that but it's, um, oh, I I, yeah, that. absolutely. Definitely. That's, that's obviously like so many of us, that's what I, I'm on YouTube looking for late at night. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, Phil, uh, yeah. So I kind of like, you know, fair play to Phil. I think I like the fact that he kind of ring fenced that fan, that agog fan side of his personality you wouldn't be able to write a song like like Two Hearts or Loco in Acapulco um, if you didn't sort of have that kind of reference for the traditions of Motown and so forth. I like one thing I like about it is like it's a song that really talks up the innocence of a crush and says ultimately, is there anything more important than the? This is why we live, isn't it? So that we can have these emotions and uh, so um. I prefer it's a little bit kind of leaden, maybe more than more leaden than I'd like it to be, you know. Yeah, yeah. it's good that immediately afterwards you get Don't Worry Be Happy, yeah, by Bobby McFerrin. Which, uh, what do you think of Don't Worry Be Happy? It's one of these tracks I had to step back from knowing so well to actually try and listen to it again. I love it, I think it's um, a clever song pretending to be a silly song, and I think mm. that's kind of its appeal. 
I'm trying to think if you, of the opposite example of a silly song pretending to be a clever song. I'd say something like, uh, I don't know, like a kind of a, a simple mind song from this era would be a silly song pretending to be a clever song. This is, <laughs> this is a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can only think of Belfast Child now. Belfast I can't get that Child and there. Was it like Mandela Day? Did I Mandela imagine that? Day? Oh, no. And they did a cover of Biko. Oh, I mean, yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah anyway um so, <laughs> but i like i like i think what the message of this song is very is quite deep in a way and quite important it's a sort of like but it's basically you know it's sort of saying that you have to fake it to make it that like if you can be be the thing that you want to be yeah. and uh or pretend to be the thing that you want to be and maybe that will push you through and i sort of think there is something to, to be said for that i sort of categorize it in a way with um, maybe like a song like Chikatita by Abba, where she sings, Chikatita, you and I cry, but the sun is still in the sky and shining above you. Uh, so that exhortation to get a kind of wider perspective on the situation, uh, or oh, Ain't That Enough by Teenage Fan Club, where yeah. he sings, Here is a Sunrise, Ain't That Enough. There are a couple of Van Morrison songs where the which you know, where he riffs on this idea that asking why will only get you so far. At some point, you have to sort of work with what you have rather than asking why it is that you have what you have. But it's a good tune as well. And how good a tune is it? Because it's such a good tune that five years later, Four Non Blondes subconsciously plagiarized it for What's Up. Yeah. I'll let you run that through. I'll run you, run that, sing it to yourself. Yeah. So I love the fact that, you know, this, <laughs> what's up? Outwardly, it's a very different song. It's very impassioned. I mean, weirdly, weirdly enough, uh, you know, what Four Non Blondes do to, to the melody of Don't Worry, Be Happy is also pushes it very close to being a silly song pretending to be a clever song. So that's yeah. kind of the completion yeah. of the circle. <laughs> Hats off to Bobby. So, Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones, so, so we talked about featuring songs earlier yeah. on, and this is, uh, this is really interesting. Uh, this, uh, and also we talked about A&R departments taking the path of least resistance. And um, did he do this on Saturday Live or something? You are spot on, Pete. It was on Jonathan Ross. Right. Um, and he did a cover of it. Mm. And seemingly the Art of Noise saw it and said, we need to do a cover of this with Tom Jones. So the Art of Noise were essentially doing a version of what happened later when Sugar Babe's record label saw that, um, what was it, Adina Howard turned down the, the invitation to sing on Richard X's mashup of, of Our Friends Electric and Free Like Me. Or she she didn't she disapproved of it, didn't she? Which mm. cleared the route for the sugar babes who were on their uppers to sort of come back and have a number one. And essentially, like that was their brother beyond moment. That was their kind of last chance saloon route to uh, pop glory. So uh, yeah, Art of Noise featured Tom Jones because um, Tom Jones hadn't had a hit for. No, I was, yeah, I was doing the digging. He did a fluke hit in 87 with a song called The Boy From Nowhere, which, oh, yes. in, but that, that doesn't count. Amazing. Prior to that, you're talking young, new Mexican puppeteer. What's that? 16 years. So he was wilderness. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and so it's a, it's a kind of, it's a sort of nothing to lose song, isn't it? And, you know, sort of, 
Now, I've, I've got to be careful what I say here because I've interviewed Tom and I like Tom a lot. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a lovely guy. He will give you 100% attention, very engaged when you're interviewing him. Um, I'm not a fan of this cover version, but I can sort of say, I think it's quite an ugly sounding, you know, those kind of fair lighty kind of brass stabs that it's everything about it is kind of um, disruptive. It's like kind of elements that fire off against each other in a kind of not pleasant way, you know, and um, even by 1988 standards, this sounded like the art of noise three, four years previously. Yeah, and, did, didn't it? Yeah. you know, I think towards the end of the track, they start referencing their own hits. So th- there's a, there's a blast of Peter Gunn in there and there's stabs from close to the edit. And it's, it's I don't know what, what the point was, to be honest, you know. Yeah, they're quite, they're quite pleased with themselves, you know. Yeah, I did find a fabulous quote from Tom Jones. And when I read it out, I could hear Tom saying it. And he says, the Art and Noise were watching and they asked if I'd do a version with them. When they sent me the finished version, I thought, if this isn't a hit, I'll bloody well pack it all in. <laughs> and you, you can just see Tom doing that, you know. Um, yeah. and he was right, obviously. It's shameless, but you know, he's and I like. There's a lot of um. There's a big kind of alpha male energy <laughs> to, yeah. to this, uh, you know. And I like. I sort of sometimes I quite like that almost unselfconscious. Sometimes Tom and I saw him do this with the Arctic Monkeys. Uh, I, I guess you look good on the dance floor. He covers sometimes he covers a song like a like a bear will mark its territory. but in some ways this almost kind of set up the second part of tom jones's career because that whole um reload thing and those covers of things like burning down the house and mama told me not to come they may not have happened if he hadn't done this yeah and this set that sets a precedent didn't it this this basically because this was successful it meant that tom jones was allowed in the collective consciousness forevermore Let's talk about a couple of people from a prior era because that's on side two. There's a bit of that going on because we've got Brian Ferry with Let's Stick Together and the Hollies with He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. I'm just trying to think why the, t- why the Brian Ferry track was a hit. Was that because of the uh, a new compilation or something? Yeah, yeah. Th- there, was a, there was a best of Brian Ferry out. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because you can hear Brian Brian's influence elsewhere in pop generally, but but actually I think it, it maybe it's more the influence of late Roxy music than early Roxy music because in the early eighties a lot of kind of groups in the New Romantic era were going on about early Roxy music, but I sort of think that going back to that Breathe song for instance, and you know we mentioned Cutting Crew beforehand, that sort of sense that Desolation can wear an Anthony Price suit that i think that's that that's kind of there's a lot of that going on and i so i think and brian ferry managed you know to be fair managed to make you know unlike a lot of people of his generation managed to keep making some great records throughout the 1980s i think he was like the beneficiary of his own influence in a way the hollies is an interest so the hollies was a, a number one record wasn't it yeah he ain't heavy yeah. he's my brother i've got a lot of time for the hollies gone back you know often overlooked but this song yeah, it's not my. F- I I love the Hollies too, and I know exactly. And I think they're very under under underappreciated. Mm. And the only reason I can think of for that is because they didn't seem too doggedly insistent on writing their own songs all the way through the sixties. So although they did write some of their own songs, they were very happy to sing a a song that was presented to them if they felt that they could do a good enough job of it, which of course they could. Yeah. Um, 
that the advert that it cut i mean the it's uh, i mean if people are listening and they want it, it's a miller light advert so if people google miller light and the hollies he ain't everything it'll kind of come up you know it's a really interesting insight into the minds of the people that came up with the advert it starts with this kind of almost dreamlike kind of image of a kind of a guy in a trilby kind of pulled right up over his eyes. He's singing, he's supposed to be singing this song, which of course we know is the Hollies. And he leaves a stage and suddenly like everything's in color. And he's a he's this kind of Christ-like Uber everyman kind of character who's kind of walking through these street scenes and just attracting the awe of all the other kind of men and women around, but mostly men, I have to say. And so he joins in with a stranger's basketball game and then there's a pensioner about to cross the road and he literally lifts up you know the, he's come, coming from behind her and he lifts her up and carries her across the road and rather than screaming murderer she just lets him and she's really happy that this complete stranger is just lifted up again and then he goes into a pub which there's like there it's six deep at the bar and only then does he remove his hat and then we see that he's got like a widow's peak and his hair brushed back into a ponytail and he throws his trilby to the bar thus kind of essentially like pushing into the queue because uh, it's got a little card on it saying a pint of the usual please and everyone thinks that this is cool that's that's a hard sales pitch in 2021 to an advertising company, isn't it? No, it's it's just the weirdest advert. And of course, but it sort of seems to appeal. It's revealing almost what it uh, uh, reveals on a subconscious level about what men respond to in other men. And there's a comment underneath the, on the and you, if you go on the YouTube clip, you'll see someone writes. I always like the way he waved goodbye to the basketball players and they're all looking at him quiet for a moment and maybe a little glum, realising that he's taking the magic away with him. <laughs> Do you want to pick a, a, a direction to go in for the remainder? If we go to the second record, hmm. there's first of all three interesting rap tracks that sit together. Just an interesting snapshot of where rap was in 1988. Yeah. Or maybe wasn't. So we've got the Fat Boys and Chubby Checker yeah. doing the twist. And um, we've got Wee Papa Girl Rappers doing We Rule and Twist and Shout by Salt and Pepper. Yeah, again, I mean, in a, in a way, I'm reminded of what we were talking about early on with um, the Christians and how, like, the interests of the label aren't necessarily going to sink in with the long term interests of, of, of an artist. And so I, you know, and so I'm looking at Salt and Pepper doing their version of Twist and Shout. And I'm, I'm wondering, really, you know, looking at it from Salt and Pepper's perspective, how much of their core following, first of all, they lose by doing a song like that. And similarly, um, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know very much about the Fat Boys at all, to be honest. But listening to it yesterday, I kind of, it almost felt like it was adhering quite closely to that kind of cavernous Run DMC template of production albeit with that kind of novelty, the novelty element being the twist. Hip-hop in 1988 was beginning to become a genre that was taking itself much more seriously, but you wouldn't know looking at these tracks here yeah. because they're throwback cover versions. Yeah, so it's, in, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a genre that's being sold short by a lot of the major labels that are kind of moving in at speed because they can see which way the wind's blowing and in a way it kind of mirrors what happened with uh with, with the first wave of uk grime in this sort of century and ultimately i think the lesson a lot of that a lot of grime artists learned which some of them didn't learn the first time around you just need to sort of maybe self-release 
or start labels or create arrangements that allow you much more control. We Papa Girl Rappers, it doesn't sort of really belong there in a way. No, no. It's a British record. And it's got, and weirdly enough, it assimilates kind of dance hall elements in a, in a much more pleasing way, you know, that it's, uh, than, than a lot of the reggae stuff that was charting that year. It's, you know, it's a really charming record, isn't it? Do you remember Trevor and Simon doing a version of We Rule on uh, Live and Kicking? No, but I'm going to go and find it. <laughs> Wait, I remember it being because it was like, um, I think they were doing, you know, when they were being the, the, the folk singers, the swing your pants kind yeah. of thing. For people who don't know, uh, uh, Trevor and Simon were a comedy duo who were on a popular, featured on a popular Saturday morning children's program called Live and Kicking. And, uh, <laughs> and anyway, they did a... I just remember it be, being quite amused when they did, when they in the kind of like twee kind of children's folk singer style they sang. What was it? In a brand new for Sean, in a dancehall style we rule. And then weirdly enough, I saw them when, say, Etienne did a Christmas show about four years ago uh, in Croydon. I think Trevor and Simon are from Croydon, I think. So, say, Etienne invited them to do a little kind of opening routine and they came on and uh, they, they did their version of we rule all over again, which. <laughs> completely lost on almost everyone in the audience apart from me and i'm not sure i really wanted to understand it this is the dance side of of this now and we mentioned the beat masters already with pp arnold but you've got this huge dance track at number five, which just sounds like a calling card for for the future. Uh, big fun by Inner City. Yeah, yeah, it's just um, it's just absolutely perfect, and it's perfect. From I remember hearing it and just falling in love with it straight away. You know, it's one of those songs where you sort of that's the great thing about music the the enormous sort of beatific sense of well being that people described when they talked about ecstasy. You could almost get by without taking it because it was kind of there. That kind of every and the, the genius of having Paris Gray singing that song mm. is that, as with Yaz, if I was 12 years younger and I was com- compiling my list of dream childminders, Paris Gray would absolutely be. Who, so there was that sort of um, everything about it is just safe, exciting. Everything's going to be all right. You know, it kind of ticks all the sort of boxes. Interestingly, on the on the back of the of, of now 13, it says inner city and then in brackets featuring Kevin Saunderson. Which is a bit, <laughs> which is a bit like saying the Beatles featuring John Lennon. Um, I, I don't know why, because the photograph inside is just Paris Gray. So um, they just got it wrong. Because wasn't it more a case of featuring Paris Gray? Paris Gray sort of stank. So. Kevin Saunderson had just do, done everything, and then he handed it over to Paris Gray. And then next to that, we've got D Mob, and we call, <laughs> we call it. As, I have to say it right now. We call it Acid. This was banned by the BBC. Yeah, which may, might have been surprising to D-Mob because they clearly kind of took great care to preempt any kind of censure. Because in the lyric, doesn't uh, Danny D say, if you thought it was a drug, you're wrong. No, you, yeah, you're wrong. Yeah. There was a, an episode of Top of the Pops where Steve Wright had um, a big smiley T-shirt on and introduced this track. And then the next week it got cut and it was banned. The BBC banned Acid for two months. And then the next Acid track to be played on top of the pops was Stacker Humanoid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. I mean, D-Mob went on to have a lot of other hits, you know, for the next couple of years or so. Come on and get yeah. my love with Kathy Dennis. Is that right? 
And they did a cover of the OJs, put our hands together. It's an interesting pairing between Inner City and Demob because it's like mm. one getting it absolutely right and not not getting it wrong, but it's mm. it's almost a slight kind of carry on version of what of what what it was going to look like. Yeah, and again, it's sort of, that's sort of like yeah, you're right. Uh, that's it, isn't it? That sort of um, kind of pantomimization. Of, of of something it's yeah it's it's ersatz in a way and actually you know often and i think this is especially true of psychedelia as well in the 60s if you really want to get a sense of the spirit of the age you often you're best off going for the ersatz tracks yeah than the kind of um super authentic ones because so so if you like for instance you know if you're going to san francisco be sure to wear flowers in your hair okay well you know, it's not you know, it's not like in the streets of of Britain, people were wearing flowers in the air in 1967. But nevertheless, it sort of speaks of something. It speaks of a sort of ears pricking up to something else, some kind of incoming energy that that is exciting. You know, and I guess we call it acid. It's Gary Hayesman who 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 used to go around club the cl- clubs saying acid. <laughs> And that, yeah. that was, that's basically why the song exists. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And, and he was a kind of figure around the clubs um, that obviously would resonate, but to an audience of Top of the Pops viewers would just look almost like a kind of cartoon version of what Acid House was beginning to be perceived as, you know. Yeah, so. Isn't it interesting that this is still what, is this four years before Ebenezer Good? Yeah. So it's kind of four years just seems like an eternity, really, for like... To think that that put the shaman at number one for five weeks. I know. There's two records bookending that whole yeah. kind of dance. Oh, Ebenezer Good is sort of essentially doing the same thing, isn't it? It's sort of like going going to great lengths to almost tawdry extreme, really. Going to great lengths to sort of find out a way to sort of say, you know, in this case, say he's a good, he's a good, and then just creating a kind of story uh, that allows it to say, oh, well, I'm not saying he's a good, I'm just saying it's about a character called Ebenezer Good. It's like <laughs> Slap bang in the middle in 1990, you've got the easy posse doing everything starts with an E. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Gary Hayesman, Easy Posse, and The Shaman, and all three of them sitting on now albums. <laughs> God rest Gary Hayesman's soul. Indeed, indeed. Millie Vanilli. Millie, I, I sounded better than I expected. What did you? It actually stands up as as a good song, and and I think that's because there was legacy. You've got Frank Farian's production. Yeah. it's it's a good song. Mm. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, you can't really go far wrong with that rhythm track. In its way, no. it's a bit like um, we we're saying with Womack and Womack earlier with Teardrops. It's all about the beat, I think, which a lot, I do like songs which kind of have a kind of funky lollop to them. So when Baggy came in, I was I was sort of there because, and I think even now when I go running, you know, because I, I carry a lot of weight, I just lollop along and I look for m- mid-paced BPMs, which sort of will allow me to lollop in a kind of quite pleasing manner. So this could almost go on one of my running playlists. And I sort of, um, I mean, the rapping's quite dismal, really, but, you know, the the chorus is okay. And um, as with, we call it acid, it's amazing to me that at least maybe four or five years later, Duran Duran had a hit with Come Undone, Mm. which deploys an almost identical rhythm. And it sounds good on that song as well. What actually struck me listening back to this track again, because you're right, the rapping's rubbish, but the melody actually is really nice. Yeah. And again, it's got that slight melancholy 
melody to it all the way through. It worked. It works quite well. Yeah, and that poor guy who talked himself when it kind of came out that he didn't sing on the track. I know. Yeah, who cares? You know, like you know, it, we're we're in far more enlightened times now, where we'd all be a lot more kind of knowing and complicit. And if that happened now, it wouldn't probably even make the media. It would probably be viral for a couple of days, and then it would disappear. Um, like you know, it's weird, really, because everyone knew that the guy from Tight Fit didn't sing on the Lion Sleeps Tonight. No one cared. He did, he's still alive, I think. <laughs> We're about to hit the last run of tracks on here. There's two tracks associated with lip syncing here because we're going to oh, yeah. talk about Martha's Harbour shortly, which sadly everybody just remembers now for Julianne Regan missing. Oh, yeah, good, missing good link vocals. though, yeah. And we've got the lip sync from obviously Millie Vanilli, which was slightly more tragic, obviously. At the very beginning of, of our chat this morning, we talked about artists that were coming to an end of things. And there's, there's a good few of them on this last side. Yeah, I'm just sort of uh, looking at the track listing and reminding myself. I think Duran Duran and Human League are two interesting ones because we talked earlier about Brian Ferry promoting mm. a best of with Let's Stick Together. Here's the Human League promoting their first greatest hits album, stacked full of hits, mm. with Love is, Love is All That Matters, which isn't a particularly great song. No, and it was a flop, wasn't it? When it came, yeah. the, the last single to be released from Crash, I think. Yeah. Having said that, the Human League did come back in the 90s and they kind of reinvented and have lived off that legacy pretty well. And Duran Duran, who I think at this point had gone to a single word Duran Duran as well, they had, yeah. they had run it together. It's not a particularly bad song, but it's no. not the dizzying heights. No, but I think it's a noble, it's a noble semi-failure i think i don't want your love um they were still engaged they were still sort of engaged with the possibilities of pop i felt like they were a bit more proactive than the human league were about mm. um pushing their sound in directions that were um, stimulating to them and once in a while they got it really really right you know that that same album uh big thing has got yeah. um, all she wants on it which i think is, is for me is one of my favorite duran duran singles and um and really updates that sort of slight cold wavy kind of synth sound in a kind of quite exciting way, bringing it more into line with a lot of kind of Stephen Haig type productions that you would be more uh, you know likely to hear in the late 80s. So I, I, I sort of, a Duran Duran failure in the late 80s is more interesting than a lot of other people's sort of failures. Duran and Duran are often very interesting when they when they misstep slightly. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. And actually make make more interesting music. So yeah, I, I will always be interested in a new Duran Duran uh, single because they do, they seem fully en engaged with the world around them, and uh, I think they overthink their records a bit too much sometimes. Certainly in recent years, they've sort of slightly they've been guilty of the thing that you two are guilty of, which is they kind of the weight of their legacy seems to be a bit too heavy the, for them to drag around sometimes. Mm. But uh, you know, always interesting. Human League, I think. Um, the, I, I think this yeah you're right it's not it's not a very good song and i sort of think that my feeling about the humility is quite unfashionable really because i know i've got a lot of friends who sort of feel like they could not do any wrong ever but i sort of feel like human league are a classic example 
you know, this happened to ABC as well. For it happens to so many bands when they're kind of on their way up, and then you know they have a kind of they have an objective, they have a, a mission, you know. But when they get there, they often sort of forget what they stand for, what the point was in the first place. And in the case of the Human League, I sort of feel like that you know the, their imperative was to keep going because it's nice being in the Human League and it's nice to have hits and all the rest of it. But uh, I don't really feel, I think that by this point, they didn't really, they'd forgotten what the big idea behind being the Human League was. It's just hard to establish new goals. And, you know, Heaven in My Hands, which is the Level 42 song on here, is a sort of really good example of that. The baby seems to be thrown out with the bathwater at some point, and uh, no one seems to know why, and no one has any kind of easy answers. And maybe yeah. the, just the answer is to just sort of go away for a bit. You know. Well, it's interesting you mentioned you too because you too had that same point at the end of the eighties where they thought we need to go away and yeah. and actually think this up differently and come back with Achtung Baby. And the, they and the record labels aren't going to say that because their record labels just want them to just keep pumping stuff yeah. out. The thing is, the thing that no one will tell these people is that their record label isn't going to have the answer. So they may as well just figure figure something out because their record label might think they have the answer, but they don't know because, of course, no one knows. No one really knows. Sometimes taking a risk is the least risky option for you because otherwise you're just on a kind of route to diminishing returns. So what you too did with Achtung Baby is, you know, a kind of milder version of what, what um, Radiohead did with, with Kid A. Put down some boundaries and establish a new kind of relationship with their fan base and say, not, and not say, I hope we hope you'll like our new record. But what they're saying is, this is our new record. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jane Wheedlin, that's a great track. Belinda Carlisle had kind of relit 1988 anyway, so the Go-Go's were all back and things and worked really well. I always think it's a shame Jane Wheedlin's career didn't, solo career didn't continue the same way because I think there's probably a lot more to give. Yeah, and um, I guess no one, it's just hard to find that song, isn't it? It's just the mm. same, like, you know, it's like with Natalie Imbruglia and Torn, you know, it's just continuing to find those songs. There's a collective will there, but somehow yeah. those songs don't come along very often. But um, no, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, what else have we got around here? So, God, yeah, to Power and Transvision Vamp. That's side four is kind of hard going, isn't it? Really, it's it's a bit hit and miss, which often side four can be on a new album. To Pow, I've written in my notes, Dumper Bound. It's beginning to sound like the, the wells run slightly dry. Transvision Vamp, 1989 was a big year for them, I suppose. I think Transvision Vamp, uh, the problem for me, the problem with Transvision Vamp is that, that there was a kind of collective will to make them better than they were. Certainly, in the same way that they kind of, I remember Melody Maker were really, really keen to sort of talk up Zig Zig Sputnik. And of course, it, it is exciting. You know, I love the KLF. I like I like bands that also work as an idea, as a kind of, as a set of ideas uh, or as a, as a manifesto. You know, those are the bands. We need those bands because they capture our imagination. I think Transvision Vamp kind of were a bit of an over-laboured idea. It was an idea that thought it was better than it really was. We've been still wedded to quite outdated notions of authenticity and, you know, being the sole writer of your songs. But I, I actually sort of think we'd still be listening to these songs a lot more now if they just kind of had a slightly more modern approach and got, yeah. got a really good songwriter for hire to sort of yeah. help them finish what they'd started. Because actually they, what they started is is something impressive in a way, a kind of an aesthetic, a set, a set you know, an updating of, a, of an existing blueprint. But um, 
there's there's no shame in getting a songwriter to help you finish off what you've started. Yeah. I'm gonna be by the Proclaimers is on here, and uh, yeah. I mean I think that and Martha's Harbour by All About Eve are sort of songs that could have been released at any time in a way. They they are sort of they're not contingent on the era in which they emerged. They're sort of you know they are timeless songs, and I'm gonna be that's obviously been proven because of its kind of success uh, subsequently uh, down the line over the years. And Martha's Harbour, I, I was reading about when they wrote Martha's Harbour and about they wrote it on their day off. They were recording the album and they just had a day off and they just were sitting under a tree or something and then it just came fully formed and they were so excited they went and recorded it straight away. I'm grateful that you've sort of given me the chance to sort of go back to a year that in a way I'd misremembered or, or didn't remember very well because um, I wasn't really looking in, in the chart really for my biggest th thrills. Uh, you know, the uh, for me, the big albums of 1988 were were introspective, the Pet mm. Shop Boys, and uh, also and um, an album by the Go Between Sixteens of His Lane, Dinosaur mm. Junior's Bug, Is It Anything by My Bloody Valentine came out that year, as did Fisherman's Blues uh, yeah. by, by the Water Boys, and, uh, and Love Sexy by Prince. But um, it's quite a poignant, I think it tells quite a poignant story because it's sort of, uh, it reminds me that, you know, crossing the ravine from sort of indie popularity to mainstream popularity was actually almost impossible. And most bands who tried to do that didn't even do well enough to get on like compilations like, like this one. And, um, and the bands that did sort of lo lost something along the way. So I think that was the year that Aztec Camera had a hit with Somewhere in My Heart, which is a, I felt like was a bit of a hollow victory. And even R.E.M., who, who had a hit with Orange Crush, you know, Green is a good album, but they'd been releasing great albums prior to that point. So again, I sort of felt there's a kind of a melancholy undertow to what was happening in pop, I feel, which was only really countered by, you know, that's why it's so nice that Big Fun by Inner City is on there because that's where the excite that's where the excitement is kind of migrating. I think we saw that more in, in the following year. It's also nice. So it's, I like the mental idea. I like the thought of um, well, two things. First of all, that was uh, 1988 was the year that they that they started um, those indie imitations of now that's what I call music were coming out. So you had these two yeah. indie top twenty albums coming out, which were really trying to to do an indie version, obviously, uh, of what this was. And I think there's one that came out that year, which is, has got a beloved song on there called "Forever Dancing." Their tentative foray into ecstasy influenced music and so i love the kind of symmetry of having that there and soon the beloved would be moving over into proper now albums yeah and you've got you've got paris gray singing big fun on there and then in 18 months time a completely new version of the beloved would be explicitly referencing paris gray on on a song that presumably must have ended up on a now album as well although uh, the track hello which i think i think that actually popped up on one of the the hits albums which but yeah same wow. same concept that's why i think big fun stands out on this album because it, that's that's the gateway track to what's coming next yeah not just in dance music but in the outlook of pop yeah and you know funny is about to come back 1988 that's when happy mondays released lazy itis so you know we're about to sort of hear from them in a big way and so um yeah there are sort of things happening so this is sort of like the calm before the storm slightly in a way bit of a mess really it's an interesting mess it's a snapshot of what the uk charts were like and and, you know that that's what are great about these albums and it's almost picking out clues 
to see where things are going next or what's yeah. what's coming to an end in some ways as well. And and I think now 13 nails that. Well, that's why this is a brilliant idea for a podcast, because, you know, it's a beautiful prism through which to sort of see how things are, you know, the constant, you know, it's a, a snapshot of change. It's a great prism through which to see what was changing and where things were going at this point. So, yeah, yeah thank you. Pete, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers. Thank you. I'll be listening in with intro. In fact, I, I fell asleep listening to the Dorset Tones of Alexis last night. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't shock what I started tonight. <laughs> <laughs>